Hi everyone, I'm Samira Dasfani. I'm the host of the Manta Cares podcast. By now you've probably been listening in for a number of our episodes. Manta Cares is a global community of caregivers and survivors of cancer. We are on a mission to make the cancer experience just a little easier. Of the last many episodes, hopefully you've learned from patients, from caregivers, from key opinion leaders in the space, and have come away with actionable things that you can do differently in your day-to-day -day lives. Today, it is my honor and pleasure to have Mark Mandel here. He and I crossed paths a few years ago with a few different ways. And when I got diagnosed, I learned that Mark himself, through a family member, had also had cancer experience. And he's come to become a dear friend, a pillar of support, and he's a phenomenal investor in the space as well. So I am very excited to have Mark here today. We are live, which is kind of fun in the in a Zoom world. But Mark, thank you for being a guest on our podcast. Well, thank you for having me. We're excited so, to see everything you're doing with Matt and uh, looking forward to being able to play this little role along the way in the journey. Thank you. Um, we're going to get started with your personal journey. I think you told me the story uh, maybe a few years ago now. Uh, would you mind telling us how how cancer became personal for you? Yeah, and, and uh, you know, really the first time uh, was my mom had breast cancer, which um, you know, when we've spoken in the past, I haven't even mentioned that because I sort of grew up in a family where you know my mom's you know motto in life with all troubles was you sort of pick yourself up and dust yourself off, and so she she went through her original brush with cancer, um, you know, at least from the perspective of a, of a kid living in, you know, an adult kid living in another city, so unaffected by it that I probably never mentioned that to you. But, but uh, you know, and she managed to navigate it always looking at the range of different options presented by the, the, you know, the powers that by her oncologist and to reject everything that was, <laughs> that was uh, more invasive. So, so you know, and, and, you know, she's in her 80s now. She has had a recurrence and, uh, you know, they wanted to do a mastectomy before and they wanted to do it a second time. And she's having none of that. And I haven't, you know, thought about her cancer again. We're very good at denial. Uh, and and uh, I, I I think she's in a full remission, and it's not like I'm not, wow. you know, close to these things. It's just really the way that is managed around her health and our family. Huh. And uh, so, you know, and I, I get involved in these kinds of things generally, but I only have a distant sense of exactly what she's doing. I know she was on tamoxifen for many years. I know she had lumpectomy and radiation her first time, and I know that was like not indicated when it came back. And I know that's what she did again. And I think she's fine. Um, so that's that was my first brush with cancer. The second one? Second one was my my ex-wife, my wife at the time, um, as, a, as a fairly young woman had um, DCIS, uh, ductal carcinoma in situ, which was um, very early stage breast cancer. Um, and uh, she is a, a scientist, a physician, and a, and, a, and a scientist, a med school professor. So it was a very different experience um, for her, you know, being much more intellectually engaged in it. And, and, and yet, you know, in a lot of ways, even if you're a doc, when it's personal, 
you know, you're very, you're, you're very much a patient. And that one, I, you know, went through the, the emotional roller coaster of, of navigating the diagnosis and navigating the care. And she elected to go in the exact opposite direction and be very, very aggressive um, beyond what, you know, some doctors, you know, had advised to her. Um, part of the distinction for her was um, uh, recognizing that she probably had a genetic risk that at the time w was told to her that the standard medical wisdom in those days was since the disease in her family was many, many women, aunts, uncle, uh, aunts and and uh, many aunts, essentially, and, and, and grandmothers in various, well, I guess her grandmother and, and various aunts. Um, but since they were all on her father's side, in those days, that was not considered uh, to be part of your family history with breast cancer. Yeah. And she, she does molecular genetics. It made no sense then. Uh, uh, and it makes, and it's not, it's not looked at that way today, but it, but it was, this wasn't that long ago. Um, and so her perspective was, um, there is a gene, it's not BRCA1, BRCA2, she checked, uh, but there's some other gene and it strikes early in my family. And there was a, there was a lot of breast cancer and, and ovarian cancer on, on, on her father's side again. And uh, she felt like, uh, you know, given that those circumstances, she wanted to travel this journey once now you know, and never again. And so there were a series of, you know, a needle biopsy and then a lumpectomy, but the, the news was never great. And so she 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 decided to get a, a double mastectomy with wow. reconstruction. You've experienced this almost in like two very different. Totally different mindsets on how to do it. Yeah. yeah and yet yeah. there you are, one a spouse and one a son. Yeah. How did that make your experience for you? especially with your ex-wife. Yeah, you know, the, I mean, the experience with my mom was like, sure, you know, oh God, I'm glad everything's fine. I mean, that was, that was, you know, the preordained conclusion from, you know, like troubles. Uh, and um, so with, with my, with my ex-wife, uh, you know, this was, we had two young children at the time. It was, you know, the, the, the process as, as, you know, your readers know, as they are going through this it is often, a long series of, of interventions and, and at times, you know, a series of, you know, moments of fear and finding out and maybe it's not good news. And then you you know, you readjust. So there were, there were a lot of days that were, you know, get up at, before dawn, get the kids fed, get everyone in the car, go drop mom off at the hospital for the next biopsy or, or surgery. Uh, drive back, get the kids to school, you know, get, you know, get, get, you know, just there, there's a lot of logistics mm -hmm. amidst um, a journey of, of, of deciding that was challenging. We were already having some challenges in our marriage and, and uh, this process, it, it was hard for me as hard as I might try to be the perfect husband for her in navigating this um, and I, I think just telling my story, it's my case. Like I was working hard in this, but it was hard to be, you know, appreciated the way I wanted to be appreciated. It was hard for her to feel like she had the care that uh, she was seeking, you know, and one, 
one big challenge that you know I think would be actionable for your readers. The I, I was away at a conference in another city when she got one iteration of bad news. You know that that I, I think was maybe going from a needle biopsy to a lumpectomy and not having a clear enough margin. And you know it was the data that ultimately led to the mastectomy. And you know, we're talking in the late afternoon or evening, and and um, she asked me get on the first flight back now, and um, I, I don't even know. I, you know, I, I probably should have gone and checked whether there even ever was one then. But I, um, there was something I thought was very important to do the next morning um, in, in this conference I was at, and I would leave immediately after that, and not doing that. Um, was devastating to her. And um, so don't try to make your own decisions on that, I would say to the readers. Like, just substitute the person's judgment who's struggling, you know, and just do what they want, you know. Um, doesn't matter whatever it is you think, you know, on we that should If you're okay with it, we should unpack that a little bit, though, right? Because yeah. I think as a caregiver, it's hard. It's really hard. And there was a there was a good reason. I mean, the thing, the session I wanted to attend the next day was well, the details don't matter, but it was sort of like it, it was a debate between two different physicians on the on um this emerging area that I was the CEO of a young company in that lived in the middle of that debate. I could only hear it there that one time, and I really was under a lot of pressure to make a life decision to stay in this or not. And it was, you know, interacted with the marriage. You know, this was, you know, it was, I was in a high risk situation. Do I continue with that? There were a lot of things at stake. And so I had my reasons for why this was the most important thing. And I, I literally don't know whether there was an earlier flight. It's only now that it's occurring to me there may not have been, and maybe that would have been a safe haven. Like I'm on the, uh, but but I didn't. I I um, you know, to my detriment in that setting, and, and I'm sure in others, it, you know, operate in the fact realm and the and the you know the argumentation realm, and and I wasn't listening enough to the. You know, what she needed was emotionally just, a, you know, a bear hug, you know, uh, and and as represented by, you know, yes, I'll get on the next plane back, yeah. you know, and, and then if it was sort of like, you know, there wasn't one until after that session, that would have been fine. But but uh, I didn't do that in it. And it really mattered. Mm -hmm. um, there was another time when um, amidst all that juggling. Um, the uh, um, she'd gotten back from one of her surgeries and um, wanted me to go to the drugstore and pick up some prophylactic antibiotics, sort of, you know, make sure you don't get an infection. And I, we sort of entered the classic male-female um, dynamic of, of the, you know, the guy being asked to do something that, uh, you know, the linguist uh, Deborah Tannen has, has analyzed this dynamic. Well, the 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 uh, um, I'll get back to her analysis of it, but 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 I had a whole plan of like I wanted to go to the grocery store too to pick up some stuff to make the family dinner. There's a lot for a caregiver to manage, and I wanted to do it 
in that course of events, you know, and, and I was going to take a minute and then go. And, um, we, you know, sometimes when, when you're asked to do something, you don't want to do it right then. You want to do, this is what Deborah Tannen has analyzed. The guy wants to come back and feel like, okay, now I've got my plan and now I'm going to go do it. I'm not being told to do it. Mm -hmm. So in any event, there was, there was a certain amount of delay and more than one request. Could you actually go to the drugstore and pick up that medicine? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I eventually went and got it. And, you know, I'm sure it wasn't a, I'm sure it's not a point worth arguing uh, uh, that it wouldn't have mattered, you know, you know, whatever the hour or two, but it mattered a lot to her, yeah. you know, and, um, so, you know, years later, I've, I've heard the statement, you know, you could do everything, you know, an enormous amount of things to, to provide care. But if you don't do the one thing I'm asking for, then I'm not being cared for, which, you know, is logically, it, it, you know, it's obviously it makes no sense. Um, but but emotionally, uh, you know, it, I, I think it's, you know, it, it's a true statement by definition. It's what somebody feels. Um, and uh, so, you know, those those were two of my failures that were like unforgivable. Um, and, uh, um, and 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 so those were those were challenging dynamics. So there was a bunch of stuff you said that I am going to try and pull out some themes for just because yeah. we've been now yeah. we've had a few episodes and I'm going to try and string out a couple of themes. So yeah. theme one I'm hearing consistently is as a caregiver, you sometimes don't know what is that most important thing, even yeah. if it is said to you, because it doesn't fit in your life context. Right. As a second theme is as a patient, your life has come to a standstill. Mm -hmm. As a caregiver, that's not true. Because you are picking up the slack. Yeah. Especially in a marriage or in a partnership or in a family dynamic, that burden of responsibility is now shifted to someone else. Mm -hmm. And that is not often recognized as a patient because your life has come to a standstill. You put on these blinders and you kind of just have to get through the day. Mm. And you may not have the physical capacity or the cognitive capacity to grapple with everything else that's happening. But as a caregiver, while everything else is fine, you're, you're now juggling more balls than you were previously. Mm -hmm. And that I feel as though that dynamic is not something that the cancer community has necessarily unpacked well yet. Yeah. And I think therein lies the opportunity to give caregivers different types of support. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, one other thing that, that plays into, I mean, this is, you know, uh, Challenging stuff. I, 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 we're not the only couple that ever went through something like this and and, and split. But it, and it wasn't over this. It was it was other stuff. But this set a stage that that was challenging. Another thing that I think was very challenging is there was this huge with with breast cancer. There's this huge com sisterhood community that shows up from nowhere and envelops you. And and on the one hand, isn't it lovely to have this network of support? But um, it it was hostile to to um, to me and, and and to my two young boys. You know, um, my my ex wife had a party the night before her first mastectomy. You know, a, a bye bye boot party that was for that community, and it was like a snowy night, and uh, it was happening at a friend's house a couple blocks away, and. You know, I had two 
little boys who knew there was a party. And, and, and uh, you know, I was home taking care of them. And, and um, uh, at a certain point, we decided sort of they, they motivated, let's trek through the snow and say goodnight to mommy, which is what they like to do. That was a tradition. It would have been odd not to say goodnight. And so we, you know, walked a couple blocks, you know, we put on our snow boots and walked up over there. And it was, it was at a, a dear friend's house, but we weren't greeted by our dear friend. And it was a woman only thing. And we were, we were really like a whole bunch of strangers were sort of hostile. It was like, I mean, emotionally, I remember it like going to a Halloween haunted house, kind of. It was like this creepy, you know, there was a lot, I think they were in the middle of women telling very personal stories and they felt, they felt, um, I mean, we were not welcome there, but it was just a weird response, you know, and then out of this sort of, kind of out of the horror, you know, my, my ex appeared briefly, you know, was warm and said goodnight to, you know, her to boys and, you know, and gave me a dirty look for showing up and off we went. But I was just, you know, I had two little boys that wanted to say goodnight to their mom. They were, they were also enveloped in the notion that there's a lot going on here. You know, they were in the car going to the hospital, you know, and so um, I think there's a caution there, you know, as you benefit from this network, you know, um, don't let it estrange you from the life you already have, you know, and, 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 you know, there, there were probably whoever it was, you know, stranger that treated me hostily at the door, like, you know, be aware of there, there are some of these people that are not all good and, are, you know, and, and maybe that's a wonderful person who just, you know, but, but just be aware of, you know, what you're collecting. And um, I'm so glad, Mark, you are telling this part of your story because I think it is not stated. And I think as a patient, I breast cancer patient as well, the community did envelope me. And it's funny, like very, very early in your diagnosis, it's very, at least in the US, and a lot of people are not in the US and don't necessarily get the advantages of those communities, but at least in the US, very early in the diagnosis, it's almost like you get this exclusive license to a club that only you belong to. Mm -hmm. Not your caregivers, not your mom, not your dad, not your spouse, not your kid. Mm -hmm. It's you as a yeah. patient. And they're not always nice to those other people. They're not. And yeah. it's extremely insular. Yeah. So, and I, I, honestly, then that's part of why we went after Mantic Cares and we're, we're on this mission is because we recognize that the caregivers don't have anybody else to turn to. Yeah. Yeah. And you have this community where the loved one is is being embraced by it and pulled into it, but it's a closed wall. You 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 can't you you don't you don't get the you don't get the partner membership you yeah. would at, at a yeah. gym. Yeah, and, and I have right? a remedy that I'm going to advise and right, it comes up right now, which is one thing we did really well as parents, and I'm I'm very proud of it. It wasn't my idea, but but somebody gave me a great insight about about sibling rivalry. You know, I've I've two young men, but, you know, that were two little boys in that story. They've, they've grown up since, you know, the podcast. Um, and uh, right from the start, you know, when, when kid number two came along, um, we were told that, you know, the challenge starts with, you know, that everyone starts feigning of fawning over the baby. And, and that's, you know, until now, the older child was, was the star. And, and, uh, 
you know, I even heard the analogy of it. It's sort of like just to try to put yourself in the in the view of what it's like to be the older child. Imagine that you're an older wife, and 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 suddenly the husband comes home and says, "Hey, I've got some great news. I'm bringing home a, a new young wife, and and she's so awesome." And you're expecting you know, wife number one to think this is terrific. And that that made this very tangible. And and so when, you know, people would come to visit with a young baby right from the start and they'd show up and they'd dote their attention, I'd always redirect it. Yes. And, you know, kid number one is now, you know, is he, you know, he, he he's an older brother and, you know, rise a few inches and and, and, and some people were already educated in this. They'd show up with a gift, a baby gift and a big brother gift. Mm -hmm. And, it, you know, it, it's, uh, it tears me up just to think of that, that wisdom. But I think there's a role akin to that moment um, of, you know, your, your dear friend on your doorstep wanting to dote on the baby, um, which involves you know, when, you know, this network of strangers show up at the house to dote on the person who needs the doting, you, you, like, it's an awkward um, interjection when you say, and, John, you know, and the older kid is a big brother. You're like, hey, I want to let you know, that's not, like, this is what you need to do. It's, it's an abrupt redirection. And I think, you know, maybe a caregiver's needs are not the same as, as, an older brother, but just letting people know, I'm not accepting you entering the orbit of our family here and excluding my family. Mm -hmm. You know, we're, we're a family system that is going through this. These are also my caregivers. You're, you're a stranger showing up on my doorstep who has been through something and has a story to tell me and, and wants to provide me support. We're doing it my way. And that is, you know, this is my you know, this is my friend, this is my my husband, this is my boyfriend, this is my, you know, um, this is my dad, my mom, this is somebody else that, you know, you can't just put all your attention on me. Um, I, I think there may be a role there. I think you're totally right. I think the idea that it's not a single patient going through it, but rather a family system going through it, I think is a profound mental model. That is, I, I don't think it's totally, it's totally missing. And even saying it, I, it, it feels awkward. It feels like I almost wish I hadn't because it sounds so selfish. You know, I um, don't think yeah, it is, Mark. yeah, I genuinely but, don't think it is because that it, it, it took me two years to come to that realization. When I was going through it, it I knew my family's life had come to a halt, but I didn't actually know it. The moment I actually knew it, and this is going to sound wild, is after episode number one. After the episode, episode number one. Yeah. So we record it and we publish it. And my dad listens to it. And my dad is a very stoic person and he's in tears. He was like, and he's know, what he, he was just, he was in tears. Oh. Listening to this episode, he's like, I didn't know your perspective on it. Yeah. I didn't, because even in the, in the, patient caregiver interaction, there are a lot of things patients don't tell the caregivers, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes they do, but mm -hmm. a lot of it is held back. Yeah. And a lot of it goes back to this like other community that you now belong to. Right. And then the caregiver has their own journey, which is not communicated either. Yeah. So there's a lot that's held back on the caregiver side. Right. 
So somewhere in that like middle is all of the stuff that hasn't been said to each other, all of these perspective, all of these like life lessons. And my dad's life did come to a standstill. He put his business on pause, came to the US to take care of me and his life, my mom's life, my brother's life, all of their lives went into a pause moment. But it took me a long time to recognize that that is what had transpired and unlike me, they didn't have anything to help them get through it. Right. And they weren't included in that. It, like, included. You, you can't Correct. go back and make every conversation that could have <laughs> happened happen. But you can break that balkanization that yes. there's your family Correct. caregivers, people in your life previously who are caregivers. And then there's this network. And I, I think it may be particularly a breast cancer thing because it's the female versus male. You know, in verses, I, I didn't mean to say verses, but that's how it played out when we showed up at, you know, the Halloween house, yeah. the haunted house, you know, uh, and and uh, I think in other cancers, there isn't there isn't that wall necessarily. Um, but uh, yeah, I think I think just enforcing upon your new friends that um, to be inclusive, uh, that, that, that they don't they don't get you alone. Um, That's absolutely true. And for anybody listening to this who's on the patient advocacy side or the foundation side, I think your insight is is really, really spot on. Um, I'm going to switch gears a little bit. Okay. So in a different world, you wear, well, actually same world, but different hat. You're an investor. Yes. And you invest in oncology. I do. So I would love to learn about why you started investing in oncology. What is maybe one of the most... um, one of the businesses you've invested in that makes you really proud. Mm, okay. Yeah, I mean, there's different things you can be proud of in, in early stage venture capital. Sometimes you bet on something early and it looks great through the mid stage and, and, and the company gets sold for a lot of money and then the buyer doesn't really do anything with it. Um, so I have some of those I'm proud of. And, and you know, I wish it, they ultimately had become a drug. Um, you know, in one case, they sort of pioneered a pathway that other people are developing drugs in. So, you, you know, it, it still accrues to, uh, you know, therapeutic benefit. Um, another one that, I, that I, I awkwardly think of is the first is a company that didn't really make money. All right, we actually lost money, uh, but we pioneered a whole field of, 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 of oncology, um, cellular immuno-oncology. So, so one of the first brushes I had with oncology um, as an investment area was was I was at uh, Arch Venture Partners, and we had invested in a company called Excite Therapies, which um, morphed a little from what it was originally founded upon, but it but it it rebuilt itself around a technology platform out of uh, the people moved, but it was originally the University of Chicago and then the University of Pennsylvania, Carl June's lab, uh, which was focused on T cell biology. And they pioneered a lot of what became CAR T, uh, uh, chimeric uh, antigen, chimeric antigen receptor T cell therapy. Um, they didn't quite get to the the chimeric uh, receptor in, in that incarnation. It was in the roadmap. Carl June pioneered that subsequently. The company didn't last long enough, but um, 
you know, I, I started getting involved in the company just as a as a junior person at Arch Venture Partners, hearing the story, and then I got to know the CEO Ron Berenson, and then invested in the company from Rivervest after leaving there. Uh, Bob Nelson had invested in it at at uh, at Arch, and uh, so that was my first exposure to the the asset class, and uh, um, I think my first you know, pure play bet in, in oncology. And in the long run, it was a good bet, you know, <laughs> T-cell uh, therapy is a big deal. And uh, I'm proud to have been there early. Um, you know, they don't all, they don't all win in their first incarnation. Carl June um, himself, you know, was separated from that effort afterwards. And he ended up, you know, creating what became Novartis's effort. And, and a lot of the people of Excite became Juno, and uh, and you know, and, and Nelson himself, you know, invested in Juno, so he got to to win on the second round. Uh, so we've said a lot of terms today that I don't think anybody's going to know about. So I'm gonna let's maybe unpack them maybe sure. a couple of times. So yeah. maybe let's start with what is oncology investing as an asset class? Like, what does that look like from my lens? And I'm very new to the space, but it feels like it runs by different rules all of a sudden. But is that true? What what are the rules? Are there any? Well, it depends so much on what stage you're investing at, right? And uh, you know, the um, I think one of the rules that that makes it a, a safe place for investment has been that if you ultimately can develop a therapeutic that benefits patients, it's going to be a winner, and the details of that don't matter very much. I think that's the most important rule that animates investing in the space. The, the problem is still so vast. And, and uh, I hope we reach a day where we need to up our game and be clever enough to know, is this the best cure for this disease? But right now, if you can really, you know, it, advance the ball on any, any cancer, it's, it's going to be a good investment. And, uh, and that, I think, is... is one of the most fundamental things, um, the uh, other rules, um, uh, you have to, there's a whole mindset around the models you're looking at. A lot of things are proven in mouse models. Proven is, is the wrong term to use, are demonstrated to be efficacious in mouse models. There's a lot of problems with mouse models. There's a lot of Different levels of quality of mouse models, but but you know the the, the um, so you one needs to be sophisticated and to appreciate that this is you know what you really want to see if you're investing early is is really good results, tumor shrinking, mm -hmm. ideally survival benefits. Um, the, the mice are living much longer. Um, their, their, their tumors are shrinking. Ideally, their tumors are going away. Complete response. Um, they are, you know, that you are eliminating metastases. Those are the most powerful things to see in a mouse model. Like an A plus is this is the best mouse model of this disease around. And there, the, the, the efficacy is being demonstrated in more than one mouse model of that disease. Okay. Um, among the attributes of, of some of the best mouse models are these are genetically engineered 
models that spontaneously generate the tumor, not just putting a tumor in the mouse, and where the natural biology of that genetically modified mouse replicates the human biology in some examples. So okay. that, that's very nice, a gem tumor model, genetically engineered mouse. Um, so you've got a great model. You've got more than one example that also works. And then, you know, the lowest level of evidence in a mouse model is the tumor shrinks for a period of time. A better one is that the tumor, that, that's an objective response. You can measure the diameter of the tumor in radiography, it's smaller. Ideally, you see a complete response. The, the, you know, the diameter goes to zero. Even better, it's a durable complete response. And then, you know, the best is a survival benefit. And all that, you know, lets you roll the dice of people, and then you find out if it's real. I love that. That is such a phenomenal, phenomenal summary of, I think, a fairly complicated space, at least from the outside in perspective. So I, I really appreciate you simplifying it. So with that mental model, I think we also spoke about CAR-T and yeah. one of your first investments being in roughly that space, maybe almost maybe dually in that space because yeah. you needed a couple of more. So, so Excite had developed the protocol for taking T cells out of a patient. It's called leukophoresing them. You, T, T cells are, are one of the white blood cells, the leukocytes. So you, um, the, the, healthcare providers, it's not the physician, but it's a nurse or a, or a phlebotomist is drawing blood from a patient, machine pulls out the cells you want, puts everything else back. Um, it's a little more than just, you know, donating at the Red Cross to, although you can donate, you know, these kinds of cells, but this is usually the patient donating their own. Um, there, these white cells are collected, T cell lymphocytes, and then what Excite developed is what is now the dominant technology for, for cultivating them, getting that, that the ones that are extracted to prosper and thrive, you know, in a plastic bag and to multiply. And, and, um, and so that's what's used by everyone. They're put in a bag with some um, little microbeads, little magnetic microbeads that have certain antibodies on their on their surface that work together, two antibodies in particular, that, that biologically talk to the T cells and, and say, replicate. And, um, and they're, they're cultured in a bag. The bag sits on a plate that swashes around. All of that was like stuff that needed to be worked out. Uh, they're in the bag, sloshing around at the right temperature and they multiply and then because the beads are magnetic, you can sort of stick a magnet there, beads come out and take the cells out. So that was the core cell processing technology that was developed at Excite that provided early hints of efficacy in humans without doing anything more. Um, because when you, when you have cancer, the cancer um, it, it is actively, um, evading the immune system. There's, there's a crosstalk between the two. And so the disease is not only embodied in the fact that you have mutant cells, you also have an immune system that's been tricked into not recognizing them. So what Excite was, was working with in the early days was just expanding the T cells, takes the ones that have been sort of suppressed they're being, when they're being expanded outside the body, you know, ex vivo, 
um, uh, even the rare ones that might know how to go after the tumor that the tumor has been suppressing, they can expand. And so when you put that, um, when you reinfuse those T cells, you've got a, uh, a better repertoire of them. And so we got some early, you know, responses. Uh, the next iteration that, you know, was Juno and Novartis and Kite, and now a plethora of, you know, second generation, let's call it third generation, just to, to, to honor those of us who were there, the, gener the, the forgotten generation that, that paved the way. Um, the, um, uh, the, the, you know, let's see, in, the, in that second generation, they added the chimeric T cell receptor. So T cells, we have, you know, billions literally of, of different T cells. There's tremendous diversity of the T cell receptor, which is which is the um, part of the cell that embodies the diversity that knows self versus non-self. Or in the case of an engineered T cell, chimeric means. Um, uh, that there's something other that's added to the T cell, and that is a specialized region that is is designed to bind to a cell of interest, that uh, that the cell type of uh, of the cancer cell, and to and to destroy those. And, and so, T cell chimeric uh, T cell receptor therapy, therapy uh, CAR T therapy, has been tremendously successful in certain B cell lymphomas where um, that, that I, I think have maybe given us um, a, a, a tremendous amount of optimism that we could do this in, in a bunch of other cell types. That's been harder. One of the things that makes using T cell therapy work better in B cells is that it's kind of okay if they kill all the B cells in addition, whereas getting it to work in solid tumor, you need a target on the tumor cell so that you can kill tumor cells, but not kill all the cell types of that. If it's pancreas cancer, you don't, you know, you, you don't want to also kill the pancreas. I, you know, I, I, you know, if it's if it's lung cancer, you certainly can't kill the lungs. That's not going to be viable. And so, you know, that there's therein lies part of the challenge in going from the early tremendous successes, you know, high percentage cure rates in certain, you know, niche B cell lymphomas to, to solid tumor. See, uh, so you're still an investor. You're still investing in oncology. Yep. If we give you a magic fund of a billion dollars that only you could invest in, mm -hmm. what would be the types of companies you would want to invest in today? I think sort of Second generation immuno-oncology is still very interesting. You know, the today, you know, the pioneers of immuno-oncology are what we've been talking about in cellular immuno-oncology. And then there are a couple of antibody therapies that we are classified as checkpoint inhibitors that have been even much more successful, much more broadly successful. Uh, they, they get less airtime, you know, outside of the industry. The industry, you know, these are, you know, multi-tens of billions of dollar drugs. So, there's plenty of attention there. Um, but I think the focus on the targets of the initial checkpoints, which are called PD-1 and CTLA-4, they've been so great that for looking at additional therapies to go after, 
it's there's a bit of you know the old dynamic of looking for the, the you know your key where the light shines where the, I think we're over focusing on additional therapies that add strength to where we already have strength i.e in my in 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 unleashing the t-cell um I think therapies focused on other parts of the chorus of the yeah. immune system not just the horn section but let's also work on the brass and and uh so that this is, you know, one, one thing that we both looked at together is in, in the myeloid uh, arm of the immune system. I think, you know, there, there's opportunities there, you know, or, or more generally in the innate immune system. Mm. Um, and uh, I think in modulating uh, metabolic therapies, you know, you and I are looking at another thing in that space that I think is very interesting. Um, you know, and 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 part of it is, you know, I I think all investing operates on sort of a continuum between investment discipline and opportunism at the other end, where the one is represented by your question. Let's imagine we had a billion dollars. Let's think carefully about where we should go. We'll map it out. And the other is is the opposite. It, you know, like. This one looks good. You know, uh, we hadn't planned that one out before, and, and and I think you know to invest well, you know, you do need to um, constantly have a top-down view and to revise it uh, from you know a thoughtful analysis, uh, which is also generally best informed by stumbling upon one of those like that is really interesting, and then you go and get smart in that new area that you really hadn't paid enough attention to. So, so if I had a billion dollars, I would further elaborate beyond the two points I've already made in, in, uh, you know, the innate immune system and, and, uh, modulating cancer cell metabolism. Um, I, we delineate a few other interesting things to go after. Um, there's a lot of interest in, in, in seeing how to, um, use nutrition to to help with with cancer therapy uh there's there's hints of efficacy that are that are very promising how you go from there to developing a therapy i think is a really important question that that uh that i find very interesting um you know so we'd map out a few of those things as part of you know you know spending that billion dollars and then we just go look at a lot of deals you know including things that don't sound that interesting at first, but for some spurious reason, the quality of the person who recommended it, uh, um, the, the academic center out of which it spins out of, some way in which it just reminds you of something else that is, you know, reminds me of something else that is interesting. The, you know, the trained mind is, you just know what to pay attention to. That You know, what does a diamond in the rough look like? It looks like a just another rock, but there, there, there are these sort of ways you develop to, to know this is this might be um, a diamond in the rough, it, you know, and you go look at it, and most of the time it's just a rock, you know. But, but that process of unturning those and trying to chip away at them, you know, you find something else, and then you go back and iterate on the grand scheme, you know, your your investment discipline based on, you know, finding something else that, that is interesting, whether you're it's ready for investment right now or not. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the companies I'm, I'm involved with um, 
you know, has to do with with uh, modulating chemokines, which are which are um, proteins that affect the recruitment of other cells. And I had a mentor uh, back when I was at Rivervest uh, Venture Partners. One of our SAB members was a wonderful guy, uh, Joe Davy, who had been a top of his field in academia, big pharma and biotech. He was, uh, you know, head of a of, of the immunology department at WashU St. Louis, head of R&D at Searle, which is now Pfizer, and head of R&D at Biogen. And I looked at something in the chemokine space eons ago, and, and, and he, just, he just had made a passing comment blessing the space, the company we were looking at, we, we, didn't, we didn't get there on. But I've always remembered that that was something that he felt was going to be promising someday. And so I, I uh, you know, follow up based on that. That that informs my judgment, even though it's it's been a long road. There there've been a lot of attempts to win in that space. Um, but I but I uh, you sort of you, you park aside certain thoughts. This has been phenomenal. I'm looking at the clock and I'm like, I I, I knew we would run up on our 40 minutes yeah. pretty pretty quickly. But I'm going to try and summarize some many many themes because we kind of okay. covered a lot of ground. Covered a lot of ground. Yeah. So I think on the, I'm going to stop the investments and then maybe come back to the caregiver piece of okay. life. On the investment side, I heard as an asset class, oncology is still at the point where as long as there is patient value on a therapeutic and there's only good data in a good mouse model, and you gave us some criteria there, it's a viable investment. You roll the dice. It's a viable early stage investment. Viable early stage investment yeah. that you can roll the dice on. Yeah. The second thing I heard is in this magical world where Mark has a billion dollars, there are sort of two broad areas that are interesting right now in oncology, immunotherapies being one, modulating the metabolic underpinnings of cancer being the other one, as sort of the broad brushstrokes. But I think as you demonstrated with a few different anecdotes, a lot of investing is opportunistic. It is trusting the people and the mentors you've come across in your life. It's about the quality of the people on the team. It's about the quality of the person asking you to look at the deal. It's keeping an open mind while having a discipline of looking at investment and being opportunistic. Oh, to get, to, to direct your attention. Direct your attention to yeah, it. Yeah. To learn more about Then the it has to win on the merits, but sure. But but in terms of how you direct your attention, because ultimately that's that's your more scarce resource. Even a billion dollars is... Well, especially if I have a billion, that's not my scarce resource. Uh, <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, Attention becomes yeah, so scarce resource. Yeah, Fair enough. I got that. Yeah. Okay. And then on the personal side, though, I think we unpacked a few fairly uh, important mental models. Model one was it's not just about the patient. It really is a family system going through the cancer experience. Number two is sometimes this exclusive license you get to this community as a patient has unintended consequences sometimes of blocking out those who are also and truly caring for us and standing by us. Number three, I think in hearing your story today, Mark, I, I feel honestly reinvigorated on the mission that we're on to build tangible tools and resources to help support caregivers because in hearing your story, being a caregiver in two very different contexts yet sort of playing out in the same sort of life that you're living, the need for resources to be tailored to meet the unmet need of that caregiver going through that journey. So with that, thank you so much for joining us. 
I have a sneaky suspicion we'll have you back on this podcast huh? to maybe do a deep dive on mm. one of the scientific huh. topics you brought up because okay. huh. I think we might need that. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was fun. This podcast, show notes, and newsletter is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast or any materials linked from this blog is at the user's own risk. The content here is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions.